0: are listening to comes a time with otiel burbridge and mike finoya if you're digging the podcast do these guys a favor and review and subscribe it means a lot be sure to follow the pod on social media youtube and if you're joining for bonus episodes and exclusive content go to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get on the bus and now here's mike and otiel
1: Welcome back to Comes a Time, y'all. O'Deal here, man. Today's podcast. Mm-mm-mm. I am so excited to. I was able to get this guy on. His name is Jeffrey Kripal. Um, All my <laughs> favorite things come together in this. Uh, music, UFOs. Theology, uh, paranormal experiences, uh, the whole nine. Jeffrey J. Kreipel holds the Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University, where he chaired the Department of Religion for eight years and helped create the GEM GEM program, a doctoral concentration in the study of Gnosticism, Esotericism, and Mysticism that is the largest program of its kind in the world. <clears throat> He's pre- presently serving as the Associate Dean of the Faculty and Graduate Studies in the School of Humanities. He's also the Associate Director and Center for Theory and Research at the Eslin Institute in Big Sur, California. He has written a bunch of books. The one we're going to be kind of talking about is this one, The Flip Epiphanies of Mind and the Future of Knowledge. Um, A lot of what this book is concerned with is scientists who were formerly not believers in anything metaphysical whatsoever that had a crazy experience that flipped them. Um, We hear of this in religions, like they'll say, oh, he had a road to Damascus experience like Paul had or it would be called a religious experience, but these aren't like in the context of any religion, especially since most of these scientists were atheists, you know, but there are people that didn't really believe that had something just undeniable and life changing and, uh, happened to them that changed their minds. Um, I found him from like UFO podcasts, but being a theology nut, um the the scientists that are starting to step out of the shadows that study this stuff from a technical standpoint, you know, a lot of them are military or in three letter agencies or whatever, but they are now coming to people in the humanities. They're they're uh and actually since the seventies they've been going to psychics like the remote viewing program out of Stanford Research Institute. We talk about Ingo Swan, who was <clears throat> maybe the best remote viewer out of all of them, and I think helped uh create the program, the structure of the program. And um <clears throat> so it's not totally new, but now there a lot of them are coming out like they're they have to be written about under pseudonyms people like professor Gary Nolan out of Stanford you know how putoff is now out and doing youtubes and you know it's uh so they're coming to people in the humanities and in uh parapsychology or religion departments to get uh their their take on this like Uh, Because some of these things like Jacques Vallée says, you know, what would have been called angels before maybe fairies in another time in another place look very much the same as aliens now in a technological era. You know, beings that come from out of a shaft of light. And, you know, so that's you could see that in myths and fairy tales and Bibles all over the world, right? So uh, he's like, maybe we're just getting hung up on semantics here. Maybe this is all kind of the same thing. So um, Jeffrey Cripel, man, this guy is one of my favorites. And I'm really grateful to you, Mr. Kripal, for giving me your time. And uh, he's already said he would come back and do some more because we couldn't possibly fit it all in. Uh, into just an hour and he's got well two year old grandchild so he had to go and my kids are getting out of school so I gotta go but enjoy this one it's a really good one and there will be more to come peace First of all, thank you so much for give me any of your time is uh
3: oh no it's an honor otiel i no you don't have to do that i i appreciate it and i do this all i i I describe myself as intellectually promiscuous i just i just say (laughs) yes to everything and uh it's 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 a mistake by the way it's because i'm always i'm always on some podcast i'm like yeah they don't they don't want to hear that that i and i've said i've said that story so many times i'm just like oh my gosh no. no,
1: I, w- I want to hear it all because I was so grateful to find people like you. I've been searching and thankfully the internet like I'm like it's not just me. I'm not crazy. Cuz you know it's no, a,
3: it's it's, it's, it's a- actually <laughs> just you Otelier. You you're, it's, you're. <laughs> well,
1: it's a lot to ask, you know, like theology, UFOs, you yeah. know, music, art, uh geopolitics clandestine, you know, conspiracy, not theory, conspiracy history, I like to say, you know. Mm. Um, So it's a lot to ask for me, and I lose people all the time. I'm sure, you know, you're around more people like that than I am.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you know, my experience, I've said this a lot, but when I talk about my ideas in the abstract, people look at me like, I have three heads or something. I'm just like, "What? That is the dumbest thing anybody's ever said." But then when I when I embed the idea in a life story of my own, they're like, "Oh, that actually makes a lot of sense." And so I've learned I've learned to tell stories and I've learned to like talk a lot about my life because not not because I'm a narcissist, I hope not, but because it actually makes sense. Uh yeah. it makes sense to people when they hear those stories. So
1: context
3: is yeah. everything right yeah it matters a lot it, well it, it 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 illuminates stuff in a way that um I think is really helpful
1: so uh for fans that don't know just I want to start here with the flip okay. um uh can you give them just like a short you know flip for dummies cliff notes like what is a flip
3: yeah, no, I can do that. Um, I know it's not, that, you know, it's a lot, but <laughs> the flip is a, is a phrase, I, I'm sure I borrowed it or stole it from someone, but it refers to this idea of, particularly with professional scientists and engineers and medical people, they're trained to think of the world in objective ways, that That the material world is what exists, and the the subjective world is hallucination, is not really real. And the flip is when these very people have some kind of life-changing experience, and they realize that actually the reverse <laughs> is true. Um, the subjective world of mind and consciousness is primary, and the world of matter and objective reality is is secondary. It's not that it's not real. It's just that it's, it's secondary. And what they realize also is that their science or their medicine or their engineering doesn't change a whit. It, yes it, it yeah. just it works as well in this new uh, flipped worldview and they realize that their earlier materialism was was a kind of um it was a kind of uh, ideology or 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 brainwashing that the culture had put on them and and that that they didn't need it and it's it's actually not true um, yeah. but of course we all think it's true because most of us haven't flipped, and and usually this is something really dramatic. I'm not talking about just a change of mind. I'm talking about a near death experience, yeah. a psychedelic uh, trip, um, a, a contact with a UFO or or, or or an entity of some kind. I mean, I'm talking about something really life altering that that happens to these people, often completely unbidden. O'Teal. like oh yeah, don't, they don't <laughs> ask for this. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yes it's proactive <laughs> <laughs> and it has its own well to speak philosophically it has its own agency it has its own intention and will and we, yeah. it's not ours it's not it's not the 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 human beings
1: And thank god mine have been for my betterment at least um, and I think yeah mine's not seeking to do any harm you know uh so I'm glad for that
3: <laughs> you know? yeah but i I guess the thing to say is sometimes these flips um they're very difficult to deal with because they yeah. don't fit in to the religious worldviews or the cultural worldviews of the person in question or the
1: scientific um, worldviews or
3: well or or frankly the religious worldview sometimes they 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 hit head on with with yeah. religious training or with just family assumptions, whatever those yeah. whatever those family traditions are, and so I don't want to I don't want to suggest these flips are always easy or or even in they're never innocent. They they always come yeah. with a lot of of implication, and they're often the most important thing that ever happened to this person. That's the other thing I'll say. We're not again we're not talking about something that happens to you drinking coffee in the morning, and you know we're we're talking about some something that happens in a car accident or.
1: Yeah, a lot of uh, the, the. It's we're not talking about little synchronicities. We're talking about a phrase that keeps coming up, ontological shock. Yeah. So, my main flip, I've had a bunch of them. I guess it's not really a fillet because I grew up in such a already pre flipped household. Maybe not my dad, but every, uh, all the rest of us. And uh, so, when that, when my, when I, had an extreme situation, that's when it happened. Mine was bidden. I did ask for it, but it came immediately. It was like, oh, what? But, you know, I was desperate. So I just engaged with it, and I didn't question it. And it did completely change my life, and all the people were when it happened can attest to that, you know. But it was a shock. It was an ontological shock. So I think uh, a lot yeah. of people... I wonder if there's some connection between that and this DMT being uh, endogenous. So what I've heard, and I don't know if this is pop culture, but I've heard it said that DMT is released in some kind of extreme situation, like when you're dying or in war, uh, something extreme where it gets released. And that's the strongest hallucinogen. So I had this theory that, Colonel Bruce, one of my mentors just had it more of it running around in his body. Yeah. Because he could just see things, other people, he could see a ghost behind you or something and no one else would see it. You know, I don't
3: yeah. know. Yeah. No, I, I just tell you a quick story here. You know, one of, one of my colleagues is Willie Strieber, who's the yes. science fiction writer and wrote also wrote communion, which is not fiction, which is based on his own set of experiences. And, Whitley is, um, he's like what you're describing. I mean, he's not a normal human being. He's, yeah. you know, he's what I call a mutant. And he, I, he just, I he, think so. yeah, he just sees things and things happen to him that don't happen to other people. And <laughs> I, I've learned over the years that, he, you know, some people are just different. Yeah. And they're, <laughs> and i mean that in a, i mean that in an ontological way and we should define that term i mean by ontological we mean something uh, consi- con- dealing with reality we mean metaphysical we mean yeah. something that's really real and um the dmt thing you know DM, the the psychedelic or psychoactive molecule you know we there was a, there was a research group in england and they called they called me or they emailed me they they must have emailed me and they wanted me to come over to England to talk to them about DMT. But what they really wanted me to do is bring Whitley Streeper. <laughs> and I, I said, well, Whitley doesn't do psychedelics. Why why are you interested in Whitley? Come on. And they're like, oh, well, we think it's endogenous DMT release. We think the visitor or the alien abduction experience is endo- is, is endogenous DMT being released into the system, and I oh that's like really interesting. That's an interesting idea actually. Yeah, um, which doesn't uh, mean it's not real. No, but what? <laughs> and there are different ways to read that. So they were reading it as DMT is not causing the experience; it's allowing yeah. it. It's yes. essentially a catalyst that lets the the entities in, as it were, yeah. or or it's what's released when you're dying so that your soul can leave the body and and access the other world but you you can also read it reductively and say oh well this is a hallucination that's caused by psychedelic compound you know so it's 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 sort of that it's sort of that ambiguity or that paradox that they were really sitting on and i i actually really really was fascinating and by the way i did bring whitley and we did go to england and we talked to them for three or four days and that that was really fascinating actually
1: um, it's could funny imagine, when you, you can
3: imagine yeah i, I love whitley. Whitley's response was funny whitley's response is jeff there is no way I'm doing DMT. (laughs) My life is weird enough. I I do not need a psychoactive molecule. I'm like, we get it. We get it. That's fine. That's fine.
1: That was Colonel Bruce. He never did drugs. Yeah. People are like, and when you say DMT as a catalyst to allow something to happen, that's like the describing Colonel Bruce. Yeah. Like if you're with Colonel Bruce, he, you would see it. He would be like, look over there. And I'd be like, How did I miss that? Like, if you weren't here, I would have totally missed that a hundred times. Yeah. But somehow he was a catalyst, and I could like. So I never did any hallucinogens when I was with Bruce. Yeah, I was like, oh my god, no! But being with him was a trip. It was a trip, you know. Well, there
3: was something going on in him that was different again, and I I, (laughs) I know exactly what you're talking about. And that's how I feel around Whitley. My one of my descriptions of him is he's a shaman in a culture without, sh- without any shamanism. <laughs> that's Bruce. Uh, and so it's like, we don't know how to understand you. You know what? We're just going to call you crazy because that's, that's the only category we have. And I'm like, well, that doesn't work. That's a dumb, uh. that's a dumb way to handle it. But that, that's actually how people most, a lot of people handle these things is they just say, oh, he's crazy. Well, he's not. It he's can, not. But
1: you know what? That kind of thing conversely could keep him alive. Yeah. Oh, he's crazy because, you know, what he could do could get you
3: killed. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: seriously, you don't want that kind of screw. He knew it. Oh, I'm just a fool. I'm crazy. I just glue pipe cleaners well, to my face. That's you the know? mutant
3: again, right? I mean, that's that's the whole mutant mythology. And one hundred percent. It just so that's why I use that word. I mean, it works. It just works.
1: And all my heroes are the, the mutant. Like one of my favorite people, a sax player named Wayne Shorter, uh, <clears throat> there was an album that they had called uh, Mr. Gone. And I found out decades and decades later that that was named after him, that they used to call him Mr. Gone. And then I finally got to meet him, and he was very childlike. And I, they, it's a beautiful documentary on that came on him. And very late in life, he just started collecting fairies. Like I have wrestling figures. They were all over the place, just fairies everywhere. And I was like, yes, because you know, I'm team Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, <laughs> the Elves. When we recorded in Iceland at some point later in this podcast, you gotta remind you remind me to tell you the experience that we had with the elves that lasted a week. Mm-hmm. Like it was tons of witnesses. <laughs> tons. It was crazy, you know, but they uh, all my heroes have this kind of like I see it as a thread as when I go back and look at all of them in time, like, you know. So, did you ever have a
3: flip experience? Yeah, the people always ask me that. Um, if you don't want to talk about it, it's totally fine. <laughs> no, I've written about it. I've written about okay. it. Okay. So, it's not, it's not, I'm just, it's, it's not a secret. I always just kind of pause here because it's, I am not a specifically gifted individual, O'Teal, in that I haven't had a lot of these experiences. But I definitely had one in, it was actually Calcutta in 1989. And Mm. it it was an out-of-body experience. Ah. It was what most people would call sleep paralysis or a kundalini awakening. But Mm. it it was pretty major. And it wasn't... um, the full-blown um, abduction or, or Kundalini awakening that people talk about, but it was enough to make me extremely sympathetic when I heard these stories, you know, so I,
1: can I ask you one question real quick? You seem to equate the two, like they're parallel abduction well, and Kundalini awakening.
3: I, I think they're very much related. Um, you know, if you, if you listen to a, a, people who have had abduction experiences or contact experiences they'll often talk about an energy that starts out in the bottom of the spine and mm. that's just classic that's classic kundalini and yeah. you know the kundalini experience that's a that's a south asian hindu or buddhist way of talking about a phenomenology that i i, I suspect is universal and and so i don't want to privilege the the hindu or buddhist um, framing of it, but the truth is, they've done more than anyone to sort of theorize this. So why not? Let's use it. I mean, if it's if 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 it's sophisticated, it's sophisticated. So i I do think these altered states of energy and mind are present in both of them, and I think the modern abduction experience is a kind of science fiction framing of an experience that's very ancient and, and very, very old and very, very human. And yeah. technological um, speak. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's sci-fi. It's I got it's basically you. sci-fi is what it is. And, yeah. But in a really, I mean, because sci-fi gives us a way of talking about this. I yeah. Mean, so why? Why? That's that's what our culture gives us, and so that's what people have, and that's what they see and they experience, and and you know people will often say to me, well, it's just sci-fi, and I'm like, well, no, because a lot of the sci-fi was inspired by these same states. So there's like this, there's another flip there,
1: and a it, lot of that sci-fi came true, like Arthur C. Clarke.
3: Yeah, but there's also Star a lot Trek. Of, Some of the greatest sci-fi authors and artists had paranormal experiences that they then turned into science fiction. So there's this flip that's going on. It's like there's a paranormal background to the science fiction, which then informs other people's paranormal experiences. So there's a kind of there's a kind of loop going on here that I think is really it's really useful and really powerful. Um, but that's how, that that in in the south asian case they're not going to use that language they're yeah. going to talk about kundalini and the subtle body and the chakras and all kinds of stuff and um that's another cultural framing of it i think
1: yeah i um was having this thought connected to that that uh i've been saying there's no science without magic because that which is doing the measuring can't be measured
3: yeah.
1: And I had this thought about um language like when when you uh I'm not sure if it's Diana Walsh Scott and your book one of you was talking about the sci- certain scientists getting their ideas from this other realm.
3: Yeah. Right, that's from, that, that's Diana by the way.
1: Yeah, and yeah. And I thought, well, isn't all of it from the other realm? Like right down to language, like all of it, all of it is art or representation in some way. So, and I don't know the answer to this question, but it seems to me logical that all of it is coming from the other side. You know, like they, they do work together. It's not yeah. that, um,
3: yeah. what I mean- you... Yeah, I don't. So I'm not a scientist, O'Teal. And so I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't speak for the sciences and I don't try to represent them. But I, what, what I have argued for decades now is that major ideas come from altered states. People yeah. don't, people don't think their way to major ideas. That That's just nutty. I know that's what we're supposed to believe, but it's just not true people get downloads and they get inspirations from places they're not aware of. And in the sciences, sometimes what happens is the scientists will get hunches or intuitions, but then they'll turn those into experiments and they'll, they'll do the math and they'll turn out that, that the math is right or that the experiment works. But sometimes of course it doesn't. And um, so I think, yes, some science is certainly, certainly all comes from altered states, but of course, most science doesn't it comes from hard-nosed um math and 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 and, and experimental experimental um replication essentially and and so i want to yeah that i don't want to i want to acknowledge that um it the, the sciences are different on the other hand i've never met a scientist who's not a human being
1: That's what I'm saying. Like, it's still someone's consciousness (laughs) doing it.
3: Something's doing the science,
1: right? (laughs) Exactly. And And, and what encourages me is when some of the scientists, like, I don't know the guy's name, but I think he won a Nobel Prize from the polio vaccine. But someone said they got it in a dream. Or the Indian mathematician, who's everybody acknowledges.
3: Yeah. Can you say his name for the people? Ramanujan is his name. Ramanujan i mean he uh, yeah that's a good case where he argued that a goddess wrote these equations on his tongue, actually, and I'm sure she did, but it turns <laughs> out that the equations are correct, correct. <laughs> that's and right. he, didn't, he didn't have the proof of them he just he knew the result he didn't have the the steps to the to the to the equation um so he was you know, <laughs> he was clearly a genius, and he was receiving these. Mathematical equations or or proofs in a way that his culture allowed and and encouraged. Um, yes, and I think you know, I did actually study math a lot, but in high many many moons ago in high school, and I, what I remember though about the math was math is really weird, and <laughs> the reason it's weird is we're just making the shit up. I mean, we're just like. Making it up out of <laughs> out of the blue, but, and it turns out it works.
1: But this is what I'm what I'm getting to. Science, ultimately, it was, and I think still is, if some will admit it, a creative process, just like art. There's yeah. an art to science.
3: Yeah,
1: I'm curious about music. You know what I mean. And I try things out, but then I also hear some things, and I try to match that with. What I'm hearing, I don't know where that comes from, what I'm hearing well
3: music music is yeah. math too, right I mean exactly I mean come on, I mean that's yeah what- <laughs> i I am a musicological idiot, Odeal if you know there were there were two there were two classes I almost flunked in in the seminary, one was Christian ethics that okay <laughs> I, I understand that the second was musicology i I could not hear what these other guys were hearing. I was just like, I don't know, I, I, I don't know. So I'm a musical idiot, but I know enough about music to know that it's math. It's math yes. put put to put to music, as it were. So, I mean, you and you have an intuitive sense of that.
1: Well, and that's what I was, you know. I've argued with musicians about this that don't believe in anything mystical. I'm like, but you're a millionaire. Because of it, we're not up here doing math, right? You know, why does it make someone feel something? Why, if we play something, someone cries now, it heals some part, you know, like we're do- like, and they just there was a hurt there from a, a, a religious upbringing that was very hurtful, and I totally understand that because my dad was the same way. But I'm always like, we're not up here doing math, man, we're doing magic, yeah, we're giving meaning, we're using. Math and vibration, well, as a vehicle,
3: to, you know, you know, you know, Othiel, I so my job is to understand religion. That's what I do for a living. And by religion, I don't mean the stuff that abused, you know, yeah. our parents or or us or and all the bad feelings we have about. But the truth is, is that really what communicated religious traditions for millennia there's two things. One is music, right? Yeah. The other is art, by the Poetry. way. Poetry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, art as in um architecture or, or yeah. the visual arts, you know, and because most people in human history have not been able to read. Yeah. And I don't, I don't say that as a snob or an elitist. Yeah. It's just true. It's just true. So how do you communicate a tradition that, to a people that can't read, well, you do it through art and music and rituals. So yeah, um, yeah, and that's so, and that's so. That's how most of these these things have been carried for for thousands and thousands of years. And people don't
1: people don't realize like the uh, that's still happening here in the United States. Even you don't have to go to some far off tribe. I was uh, living in Birmingham, Alabama, for twenty years, and I started riding motorcycles again in my 40s. I get way out in the country. I remember eating at this breakfast place. This guy came in. He was white, younger, clearly like a farmer, and we're both ordering. And And I realized that he couldn't read the menu. And the lady yeah. said, can you point to the picture? Because they had pictures of each breakfast, and he pointed to that one. And I was just like, you know, not being judgmental. I was just like the first time. I was like, yeah, that still happens right here around you and your big city, like everywhere out in rural America I, might have some of that still,
3: you know. And it's not just reading. I mean, the, the other thing that, that shocks shocked me, actually, shocks me still, but is also true is, you know, I think most of us live in a universe in which the Earth is just orbiting a star and there are billions of stars out there and the whole thing's expanding. But there are a number of us still living in a medieval yeah. cosmos in which the earth is at the center of the universe and everything's orbiting us. And um, I realized this a few, well, many, it was many decades ago. Now I was, I was at actually at a weenie roast with my family. And, <laughs> Ro- Great um, place
1: to realize well, that's what where, where you know, we are doing.
3: <laughs> we were actually at a um, pond at, at a, um, a sand pit actually is what it was. And one of my uncles, we were just looking up at the stars and he said something. And I was like, I was thinking to myself, oh my God, he thinks they're a few miles up there. You know, and I realized, <coughs> oh, he's living in this sort of, you know, pre-Copernican <laughs> universe. And it, it it really stunned me because I okay, not everybody's living in this modern cosmological. You know, yeah. expanding Big Bang universe, um,
1: or I would even say supposedly modern, because we're just like him
3: to someone else, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. And if you talk, if you talk to cosmologists, you talk to fit, fit, quantum. I mean, I know a lot of quantum physicists. I mean, they have the craziest ideas about things. I mean, just like
1: crazier than crazy. Jonah
3: and the whale, right? No, yeah, I'm not. I'm, I don't mean they're crazy. I mean. <laughs> they know they know from their science that that the reality is not what people think it is and so they're willing to just speculate about things that i think are just wild to ordinary people you know <laughs> Thank
1: god i'm glad they're so uh, inquisitive still all right um i want to talk a little bit about Ingo Swan. Okay. Because <laughs> um, all these things kind of go together. Actually, one thing I want to backtrack. You said that you did not do good in Christian ethics. Do you remember any books by Henley Barnett?
3: No.
1: In Christian ethics. Okay. No,
3: Sorry. I'm sorry. No. I, I was joking about Christian. Of course, I. Of course, I. You know, knew. A lot, I. Uh, of course, I. I feel like I'm a very ethical person. You know, I, I'm a, No, I I'm wasn't
1: saying you weren't <laughs> just. But, but for
3: some reason, there were just two classes that I really struggled with. One was Christian <laughs> ethics and one was musicology. That's that was the joke. All right. Um okay. Ingo
1: Swan. When okay. I read his book, Penetration, uh, it was kind of pivotal because You know, I had all these different streams of thought going, my own precog dreams, my mom's psychic stuff, Colonel Bruce's psychic stuff, lifelong interest in sci-fi, right? And all that kind of stuff that happens. And then I get to, and then this theological stuff after my flip, then I get to Ingo and I see it all kind of like coming together. I, I've, you know, I found him through the remote viewing thing and I've mentioned his name to comes a time viewers a number of times as he went begging him, please go read the book, you know? Um, Did you ever get to meet him?
3: No, no, but I know people who knew Ingo. And, um, you know, we have something at Rice university called archives of the impossible, which are physical archives. And, we have a lot of the Stargate um, project um, archives in 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 our archives, and you know I've written about Ingo. I wrote about Ingo in uh, Mutants and Mystics, this book okay. on art. And I gotta um, get that book. Yeah, you gotta get it. What's wrong? I'm, with I'm you working. On, I'm getting you. You got I, a stack going over here already. <laughs> would, there There's actually a whole sec, section on Ingo in that book, including on penetration, by the way. And I've talked to people who knew him well and who were trained by him, by the way, he, he's a revered figure in, in remote viewing. He, you know, he himself was an artist. Oh, um, I love his artwork. Yeah. Oh. From Green, he lived in Greenwich village or somewhere in New York city on the Bowery. And he kind of came to the remote viewing, not by accident, but, but um, it wasn't his, it wasn't his first calling for sure. Um and he was probably one of the most he helped create the the remote viewing yeah. protocol that was used at uh SRI or or the the original um place in Palo Alto that that trained these remote viewers um so he's um i mean he's legendary penetration is his 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 book about of course his experience meeting um having ufo experiences and 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 meeting extraterrestrials as it were and he also you know he was a queer man to use the yeah. the modern language and um he writes a lot about sexuality and the the interface between sexuality and paranormal experiences in a book called psychic sexuality that that I also read and and enjoyed very much all of my early work o'teil was about uh, male sexual orientation and mystical experience. So I, I was I was really interested in what Ingo had to say about um, sexual desire, sexual experience, and, and paranormal events. And I was very intrigued by, by that book in particular.
1: Well, I've always thought it's a very heightened trance state. Uh, obviously, tantric sex is used as a vehicle to get to these other... Uh, states of mind or whatever, dimensions. Uh, I remember Ingo's comment about, he goes, well, everybody's psychic. And they were like, well, how do you mean? He goes, well, you know, what about sex vibes? You know, when someone turns you on and when they're turned on by you. And I was like, wow, there are there is just like a basic psychic, you know, thing I, that we all have.
3: Yeah, I think we... Um... I think we vastly underestimate the sexual dimensions of these experiences. Um, that, I'll give you a good example. You know a lot of contact experiences and abduction experiences are highly sexual. Yes, I've noticed and that. We tend not we sometimes we'll talk about that or we'll read about it but then we'll just let it drop as if it's somehow unrelated. I suspect it's mm. very much related. Mm. And I, I I don't claim to know how, uh, yeah. but this takes us back to the Kundalini stuff. You know, Kundalini yoga was very much connected to these tantric traditions, and they ha- they were very firmly embedded in this notion that the energies start out in the lower the lower regions of the body but then they rise up uh through through the chakras into the head and beyond and so there's definitely this connection between human sexuality and and transcendent religious experience um for those traditions as well so i i just i just think that this is really major um and we don't understand what's happening um and i think ingo's work to go back to ingo for a minute um you know a lot of my early work was basically arguing that what we then call gay people gay men and and lesbian women but, but particularly gay men because i i i studied male sexual orientation there's something religious about it there's something mm. special about that yeah. particular sexual orientation because it's not directed towards social ends it's not directed yeah. towards procreation and the establishment of a family and a social life—it tends to get directed historically towards religious or spiritual ends. Um, not always, of course, yeah. but but it, it has a strong tendency in that direction. And so, a lot of my early work was basically arguing that these male homoerotic traditions are really the orthodox ones. They're 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 what's dominant in the tradition, even though it's sublimated. You know, it's not it's it's yeah. not direct. It's not genital, but it's still a man loving a male god at the end of the day. Mm. And um, so, again, this is why Ingo's penetration and psychic sexuality were so interesting to me, because it was it was another example of this pattern I had seen in different religious traditions for, for a long time. Um,
1: it's interesting, because I don't normally think of male sexual orientation connected with the religious experience i know when you, you say don't. those I, two uh, together but because western religions have just like you know it gets
3: a bad rap Judeo-Christian. <laughs> well, i know i know i know people <laughs> don't normally make that connection but it's obvious it's it's obvious to me it's obvious if you're if you study religion comparatively and historically that they're definitely connected um how again? I think is 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 a is a mystery. We don't really know. Can you um,
1: give an example of like an obvious connection between male sexual orientation and the
3: mystical experience? Well, sure. So there there are two major there are two major metaphors uh, in comparative mystical literature for union with God. One is sexual orgasm, and the other is death. Um so the french have it right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so the little death is, is 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 significant but but basically it's about absorption. It's about absorption mm. into the other. It's about identity with the other. And so a same same sex desire also gets connected to celibacy. Um mm. and when I was in a catholic seminary for example catholic men who chose a celibate lifestyle were inevitably suppressed gay men as well and they were turning their sexuality yes. in a way that was socially and religiously acceptable and not just acceptable it was admired yeah um, but they were doing that in a religious way o'teil and if you think about catholic spirituality it's all about loving this male deity who in catholicism is Basically, this naked man on a cross, and you're even eating his body and drinking, <laughs> drinking blood his and blood. blood. <laughs> you are consuming this guy, and so I mean, I don't mean I don't need to go further than that. But I'm, I mean, it's like trying. how much further can you go? Well, it's money? it's it's just staring us in the face, is what I'm trying yeah. to say. It's just so obvious. It's like, come on. And, <laughs> I don't I know people don't normally go there and I know that will be offensive to some ears, but but that was definitely my early early work.
1: I mean I some truths are self evident. This brings me to something I wanted to get into with you, which I thought would come much later, but I've often asked even rabbis about this, about Genesis 126, which says that, uh, uh, where God says, we made Adam like us, male and female. We made him, not made them. Right. So... Adam was apparently a hermaphrodite before he got separated, which I think is really fascinating in this gender war uh, era. That Like, it's right there on the first page. Can we talk about this? You know, so I think... Uh, well, that's, I think, a
3: common, that's a very common ancient reading, O'Teal, of the, of the Adam and Eve story, that Adam, Adam, was, yeah. was of both genders, like God, and then was split into male and female, or, or what becomes Adam and, and, and Eve later on. So that kind of queerness or or non-binary nature of deity is really ancient and um, yes, yeah, really. I don't want to say ordinary or orthodox, but that that is a very common ancient reading. You are not you are not alone. in yeah. um, seeing that. Um,
1: I think it says as much about God as it does about Adam, because it's like, oh, we made him like us, male and female. So, you know, I pray to God, the mother and father, you know, then the Trinity makes sense. Father, mother, son or daughter, right? Father, mother, child. To me, that's holy. Me and Jess coming together to make Nigel is if we keep it holy, you know, like.
3: Yeah. I mean, I'm. To speak theologically for a minute, I'm I'm pretty much of an idealist in the sense of I, I think we're all God. I think, you know, we're all particles or portions of God, which makes God very kinky. I mean, it basically... Does it, What? Yeah, because, because he's having, or she or it or something, is or having them. sex with itself over and over and over again in, in multiple forms, and... I, I'm fine with that, Teal. I, I mean, but, I, think that, that's I think that's the what.
1: But that's what we do. No, of course, because we're. I mean, both, it's me and Jess. Of God. Yeah. See, I, this brings up some other theology things that I wanted to get to with you because you said at one point in the book that, the, uh, or one of your talks that uh, religion has a tr- has trouble with psychedelics because it's um. Something about, I wrote it down, it's basically something to do with the separation between us and God, or God is separate from us. And when I formed a theology of my own, because I wasn't raised religious, but just trying to understand this thing, it seems to me that in that particular story, when it says God breathed their breath into us to give us life, so that life in us is the breath of God. So we are not separate from God. Like Nigel, my son, is partially me. Like my DNA, half of it's me. So he's he is separate from me, but he's also clearly a part of me. And God in creating thing, everything, I'm like, can anything be separate from God? The way I that's just my logical reading of it. Yeah, if you can so, use logic
3: for th- that. I mean, my comments on psychedelics, Sotil, had nothing to do with your theology. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I know. I, but, I mean, I got you. I'm talking about historical orthodoxy. Their theology. Yeah. Yes. Christian theology is that God exists outside the natural world and creates the natural world for sure. God creates the natural world, but the natural world is not God. I get that. It's a manifestation. Yeah, that's, that's orthodox Christianity, and that's the, what we call the ex nihilo kind of creation theology. That God created the world out of nothing because the world is not God. Okay, and I what get I was, that. So what? No, but so what I was saying is, look, historically, monotheism or the idea that God exists outside the world has had a very violent past with psychoactive plants. Yes. And it has suppressed them, and it has literally killed populations that use them in religious ways. Because you cannot have a religious experience because of a plant in a a theistic or monotheistic world. Because nothing in the natural world can take you out of the natural world. It can only take you in other parts of the natural world. So you can't experience God on a mushroom or on DMT if you hold this... This traditional theology. What I was saying in the interviews you probably watched was that I worry about the psychedelic renaissance because I think its implicit theology is not that. I, I think oh, it's it Im- definitely it's not. I think it's more like what you're saying, and yeah. and yeah. I'm just saying, look, there's a conflict there. There's there's a contradiction there. It's not that I am citing. With that with, theology, yeah, no yeah, no, no I, I, got,
1: I, I didn't and I didn't think that, but I think you'll be encouraged to know that uh, you know who Paul Stamitz is right yeah he um he's uh I can't believe it, it's like a friend of mine now, but he uh has dealt with a lot of like evangelical Christian communities that are secretly. Taking mushrooms and having, I think, maybe sometimes their first actual religious experiences. I I wasn't raised in a church. I had some experiences that I didn't consider religious, the dreaming into the future. But when I did my first LSD, I had full on—it altered my life, and now I play with the remaining members of the Grateful Dead, (laughs) so it clearly took. Um, But, (laughs) yeah—
3: No, I, I th- and I have no I think that's true. I think I think I think psychedelics do give people access to the divine. I have no problem with that. All I'm yeah. saying is that that is not traditional orthodox. Theology. To be sure.
1: Yeah. And that's why I'm not in church now because my the I consider myself if I had to put a label on it and I'll ask you about dual aspect monism, because maybe that's what I am trying to figure out what I am. I just call myself For lack of a better term, a heretic Christian.
3: Yeah, no, you're actually a mutant, is what you are. (laughs) Now, Um, but that's
1: like what I'm more getting comfortable with now because now I'm kind of getting more Jacques Vallee about it. Like, this is we're killing each other semantics, Mm -hmm. right? Okay, one locale in time, it's elves. Another one, it's angels. Another one, it's UFOs. Uh, I mean, aliens. Another one, it's and I'm like, I don't care. Like, all I know is some people are very are more anomalous than others. I think we all have anomalous property. You know, we're all like X Men in some way. Like, that's my thing to find out what's my kid's right. supercar and fan the flames on that. Right? You know, like so. <laughs> right. right listen,
3: I listen. I I'm with you. I'm just t- uh, My my message is just look beware of these religions because oh, I, they're yeah. really nasty to some of this stuff historically and I, um, the, the yeah. U, you know to go to go to jacques for a minute i mean you know the ufo stuff um i mean a lot of these communities see ufos as demons and yeah it's not- but you
1: know when they're abducting people and raping them and Yeah,
3: it's not. It's
1: not an unreasonable conclusion. Cattle cattle mutilations don't look that fun for the cattle. I mean, I think it's a both and. Like, I think everything has polarity. So, if there's good aliens, there have to be bad ones. It's like that's why I can never be tribal. Yeah, because I can never trust a whole group as a group. There have to be bad and good of everything. So there's if there are aliens. There almost have to be bad and good. It's like people get bummed. Well, why would they crash? I'm like, if you're in the physical plane, there's entropy. Like stuff fucks. You know, it goes bad. I don't know. Like I don't.
3: Yeah. I'm (laughs) just saying. I'm just. I'm just trying to be cautious with people about religious traditions. That's all. No, I'm not casting aspersions or making judgments (laughs) about people's theologies or their their religious experiences. I'm just saying, wow, historically it hasn't it's been a it's been a horror show, by the way, historically. Yeah. Yes, so let's yes. let's acknowledge that and let's yeah. not let's not um deny that because we need we need to be really honest with each other now and we need to be really um I think we need to just be honest with each other and and tell each other what, what we're actually experiencing and and like the demon yeah. thing, let me just say something about that, Otiel because I think this will throw that into question too i I personally am extremely suspicious of any demon talk yeah. and and let let's take let's take the cattle mutilation thing, which by the way, I think happens i yeah. I don't think we can explain it in the ways that it's explained away, but otiel we we slaughter millions of cows every day or to, just
1: animal testing just not even to eat them i mean just to test our makeup
3: we we are demons clearly yeah. to these cows but to ourselves are we demons no we we think eating hamburgers and having eating steak is a good thing and i eat hamburgers and steak by the way i i'm I one of too, the demons too. to th- wow. these creatures so if a if a few hundred cattle are mutilated, okay. But is that really demonic when we're literally killing millions of these things yeah. every day? I, well, I
1: don't... I'm I'm not saying that they're right, but I'm also not saying that we're not demonic because we yeah. clearly are. <laughs>
3: well, I'm just saying all I'm trying to all I'm trying to push is that this interspecies relationship thing is yes. really complicated yes. and species first of all we they eat one another okay you know we <laughs> do it's it's not it's not this pretty picture that people want to imagine and so but so the but the language of demons to me is a it, it really stops the conversation yes about, about a lot of this thing and i'm just i it worries me yeah a lot actually um, well they' they're gonna it. die soon
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> all are. I, mean, come on. I mean you know that I just think uh, that's kind of my my way of making myself feel better that a lot of people are hanging on to that old paradigm or've got one foot in the grave, and we can get on to the
3: new things, <laughs> yeah, well, you know the old saying, science advances one funeral at a time. <laughs> I mean, I said that. I said that when Avi Loeb came on the
1: podcast, he goes, "Oh well, I hope no one has to die." I was like, "I was joking," but okay, (laughs) never mind.
3: (laughs) Well, the generations sometimes it does. Sometimes it does take that. Actually, yes, it absolutely does. (laughs) But sometimes, actually, future generations know less or do worse things than former. I mean, it's. It's not automatic progress, unfortunately, um
1: no, okay. so that's how we have dark ages. I mean, we can't build a pyramid now, so to me, <laughs> technically, we're still in the dark ages because we don't know how they did it yeah. <laughs> you know? so but i I hear you it is a it's it does stop the conversation, and it's probably one of the things that it's holding up disclosure, although I don't need disclosure for the Fans that are not as deep in the UFO rabbit hole as we are. Disclosure, as I understand, you can correct me, Jeffrey, if I'm wrong, is for the government to come out and acknowledge this is, right? I don't need the government. The government's been saying weed and mushrooms were worse than alcohol and tobacco for (laughs) how many years, right? Like... But, you know, the aliens or ETs or dimensional beings or all the above or whatever they are, are disclosing themselves to people individually and have been for how long? Like ever? Forever?
3: Yeah. No, I'm with you. I I was on a, another podcast um, months ago, and the lead question was... <laughs> What would religions do if there was full, di- full disclosure about aliens? I'm like, what are you talking about? There's been weird things coming from the sky and doing things to people for <laughs> thousands of years. That that is old news, you know. Yeah, that's what we call religion, by the way. <laughs> and, um, I'm not sure that went anywhere, but I, I think that argument is totally sound. But generally, what people mean by disclosure is government. Um, I'll tell you what does matter, Otil, about the government coming clean on this is money. Oh yeah. Um, you know, I I live and breathe in a in a university or an academic world, and I'll tell you that money is available for to studying certain things, and it's not available to study other things, yeah. and that then creates. An order of knowledge that privileges some things and and deprivileges other things, and so I I think the flow of money is actually very significant because it's yeah. also a flow of investment and meaning and worldview and all kinds of things, and so I think this this notion of disclosure we can critique it and, and criticize it, and I do, but it also there there there's something about it that I think is is significant. Um,
1: well, I I understand why they can't do it, because, you know, I think, and this is just my feeling. Like you said, um, religions are used to beings coming from elsewhere. The government can't handle people knowing it, I think, because then they know how much the government's been lying. And you're talking about crimes, people being murdered, like I'm sure a lot of the people have died since whenever that was going on. But, you know, how do you trust your government? when We're talking billions and billions of dollars, like the money. You want to know why the military budget is so, like, how they could lose a billion dollars or something? Like, you know, that's how it goes down that Black Project rabbit hole.
3: I I, I think the language of disclosure, too presumes that somebody actually knows something. And <laughs> I'm not convinced they anybody knows what's going on. I mean, I think it's very likely that there's a there there. I think they could show us the ship though. They <laughs> may not be able
1: to explain it. You know what I mean? Like just what if fucking what show if it to us, man. Come
3: on. What if the what if the the thing to disclose is we have no idea what's going on. You know I that's fine. I, it,
1: I'm like you. I believe that to be true. Mm-hmm. I do, but I still think they got a ship somewhere.
3: <laughs> well, okay, that's another that's another conversation up you. I'm not so sure about that either. But that, but I could be wrong. I mean, what no. Well,
1: I actually, I would love to hear why, because I think it, it would really, you know, when you hear about so much back engineering and and you know, we don't know. He's right. There certainly seem to be an awful lot of scientists. You know, how pudoff has been working on something all these years. You know? Yeah, right. No, how no, has it? So Valet. I mean, we're talking like 50
3: years. I'll, I'll you tell know? you. I'll tell you why I'm, I'm skeptical or suspicious, but which doesn't mean I'm right. Okay, I, okay. Yeah. I, I listen. I could be very, very wrong. I mean, they could pull the ship out tomorrow, and I'm gonna like, oops. Well, that, that one. Check that one off. I'm, I'm wrong there. Um. So I don't have any, I don't have any feeling about needing to be right here. Okay. Yeah. But, but here's why. I'll tell you why. First of all, there's a lot of things. About the UFO phenomena that make absolutely no sense if they're extraterrestrial, yeah, it just, it just doesn't make any sense. And some of the some of the most seasoned and knowledgeable researchers, like Jacques Vallée himself, do not actually accept the extraterrestrial hypothesis. They think it's wildly improbable. Okay, I agree so, with that. Actually, okay, so. The whole notion of a ship, though pulling a ship out, presumes that this ship is is coming from somewhere else. But it's does it? Some, but well, does it? It's coming from somewhere else. Okay, we're, we're going. I'm we're not gonna... even
1: talking about when, because with USOs, I, I mean we know more about Mars than underwater. We have more of it mapped. Yeah. So I was I was kind of tickled by this theory of that they've been here longer than us. And that they may have been under the water the whole time. And I was like, so you're telling me some like amalgamation of Wakanda and Aquaman is literally <laughs> true? Like, what are we? Okay.
3: Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So that's one reason, OT. I'm going back to my doubts here. You're, you're, you're pulling us in another direction. You Sorry. got us an Aquaman now, for God's sake. So but let's... they
1: have the ships do travel underwater. So if oh. they, let's say, hypothetically, like some people say, create a gravity well around them and that doesn't yeah. matter from space to atmosphere to underwater, they could still do these amazing So if they could have been here the whole time and their ships. And they have technology.
3: Listen, I don't know. Listen, I, 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 I'm still with Aquaman here. I'm, uh, you're, 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 you're in the movies here. Um, you wrote this. You wrote about mutants. Come on, man. I did. I did. It's, it's my fault. I'm not. I'm, uh, I'm trying to explain to you though why I'm skeptical, and you keep going to Aquaman. So I'm, I'm sorry. Actually, I, I, uh, I'm a bit puzzled here. Um, Here's why, though. In my world, if you're going to research something, you need a citation and you need to be able to go somewhere and show X, Y, and Z. And we have none of that, O'Teal. We have nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and also, we know from a lot of sources that a lot of the UFO phenomena is disinformation.
1: Yes, we, for sure.
3: We know that. Okay. So, for sure. As as an as an academic, as someone who who is responsible for writing stuff that people can go and find the citations for, I, I've got nothing. You know, I've got stories. I've got lots of stories, yeah. but I don't actually have the ship, or I don't have the bodies. I, I. You but we know,
1: do have the pilots that say that they saw it, and people on ships that say they saw the craft going underwater. Correct.
3: We have that but we also have that in in the history of religions we have that in the history of culture and civilization and but but that's never enough is it um for for these for these other people i'm just telling you why yeah I'm for skeptical. them yeah. yeah no
1: i we got to be skeptical look i'm all about i live in my left brain and right brain the left brain is to verify the things the way that it does and the right brain is to and they're supposed to work in in harmony with each other to be like hey is this you know sometimes you just gotta go it just doesn't feel right to me you know what yeah. I mean so I yeah. get I totally get that and I'm not discounting the the left brain I'm very Virgo and analytical and like everything categorized and but you know I also like everything's on the table for me Aquaman Good. Wakanda you know like <laughs> I don't know. And when things exhibit certain qualities, I have to go, well, and I'm encouraged that, you know, fighter pilots and all these really respected scientists would uh, treat it that way to be like, Hey, all I know is I saw it. That's not supposed to be able to happen.
3: Yeah. And that's, that's what I meant earlier about the disclosure movement is it's actually very helpful that these sorts of people are talking about it because otherwise, you know, th- this is why I wrote the flip. By the way, to to go back to the the flip, I teach at a very STEM oriented school. You know, most most of the kids are going to grow up and be scientists, um, engineers, or or um, mathematicians of some sort. And I was using all these traditional religious resources because I teach the history of religions and. I know they were thinking, oh, well, these are religious people; they don't know their science. So, if obviously if they did, they wouldn't say these ridiculous things. So, I turned to the stories of scientists and engineers and medical yeah. professionals, and I was like, okay, now say that. And and they can't, of course. Uh, they can they can still come up with reasons why these stories are illegitimate, but they can't say yeah. that the people don't know their science. You know. Yes. Exactly. Can you and, name a few of those people? Some um, of these scientists. Yeah, I mean, well, one of them is Carrie Mullis, who won the Nobel Prize uh, for the for the human um, genome um, project early on, and he wrote a lot about his own abduction experience in a book called oh. "Dancing Naked in the Minefield." So Carrie, you know, Kerry's a Nobel Prize winner. Carrie's no longer with us, by the way. Yeah. I sat down with Carrie and I listened to this story and I read about it. And it's a very dramatic story. And his his argument is essentially, look, I know you can't do science with this because it's not repeatable. And I, I know it'll be considered you know yeah. wild. But it actually all happened and it's real
1: and i uh, did just win a nobel prize for science
3: well yeah <laughs> you know? and so you know Car- carries just one of a couple dozen of these stories that i tell in, in that book um another one is you know one that comes to mind is bruce grayson is actually his name he's a he's a psychiatrist retired now at the university of virginia and he tells this story of sitting down this this medical doctor asked Bruce to help him talk to his wife about his own near-death experience and how it fundamentally changed him. And he wanted help because he knew his wife would be very skeptical because she's also a doctor, and he just wanted help from Bruce to, like, talk to her. And so they sat down, and he started to tell his story, and she stopped him, you know, after the first sentence or two and says, wait a minute, I had one of those experiences, too, and here it is. And so Bruce's story is that, look, these experiences are everywhere, including in in our medical professionals who are not talking about them because they're ashamed of them or they're afraid of what their peers will say or sometimes what their wife will say or their husband will say. But, in fact, they're there. They're just they're yeah. just there, and and to me that's a really powerful um, example of a story. In this case, medical professionals who who really who really do really do struggle with these things. I think.
1: Do um, you know any other stories of uh, scientists that actually use the metaphysical side to in,
3: uh, figure scientific things out? Well, I've certainly heard those stories. Yeah, I mean, offhand, I can't name names because I just my me, that's not how my memory works.
1: Yes, go at get 60, the books,
3: folks. <laughs> at sixty-one, yeah, you don't your memory doesn't. But I've certainly heard of scientists who get ideas for their science from altered states and from dreams and from psychedelic states and things like that. But then they 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 then have to go and do the the science, or they have to yeah. go do the experiment. You know, so it's not an either or again it's it's a kind of a both and approach um and you know that's how to take us back to ingo that's how remote viewing worked yeah they 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 used the remote viewers to access sensitive espionage sites but they probably didn't act on any of that information alone they probably also put it in concert with more reliable or technological means of of spying, and so it was a kind of, you know, it was a kind of multiple approach that 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 was that was effective or was probably we don't know actually how it was yeah. used. Um, that makes sense, though. Yeah, and and again, that's what that's my argument with something even like the humanities is that a lot of these these ideas, these big ideas really come out of altered states, but then they're put into book form and they're put into an argument and people sort of access them through this argument, you know? Yes. Um, and so a lot <laughs> of the intellectual life is itself a flipped state, but it's flipped in a kind of indirect, indirect way.
1: Mm. I, uh, I had Stefan Schwartz on the podcast and he was one of the people that, uh, Helped me realize, uh, and from watching him on other podcasts, like on Jeffrey Mishlove and stuff, that there is a lot of science that has been done. Like the University of Virginia did all these, uh, I guess, documented all these kids that uh, had could say where they were in a past life, where they lived, how they died, blah, blah. But I think it was like 1700 or it was a bunch and they were able to like go find out, yeah, this guy did live here and this guy did die that way. And, you know, um, he did a lot of experiments himself, you know, remote viewing to find archeological, um, uh, objects that were lost Cleopatra's tomb or something like that. And, and, uh, so as I talk to people and they laugh at me, I'm like, you know, the stuff is up there on Google Scholar. Like I'm not the the science has been done, that, you know, in a lot of yeah. different areas. Yeah, yeah, you know?
3: yeah. The 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 children who remember previous lives, what are called court cases of the reincarnation type. Those were mm-hmm. at the University of Virginia with a psychiatrist named Ian Stevenson, and then a successor named Jim Tucker, who was who is a child psychiatrist and studies the same kind of thing. And most people who've looked at that material come away impressed um, that it, it isn't easy to explain away. It doesn't necessarily prove reincarnation, but it it sure suggests something like that.
1: Well, they Um, were able to get that info somehow, even if it wasn't them. Yeah. They tapped into.
3: Yeah. But my point is, is that, people who have looked at that, I mean really thoughtful, careful people are generally really impressed with the with the cases. There were 1600 cases or 2600 cases. I, I can't remember the number that Stephen Even Stevenson put together and then Jim has done a number of of others. So it's it is all there. It's all it's all in the record.
1: Yeah, I think uh some of this stuff is hard to argue with. Okay.
3: Um and I pre- if you have to go I, I yeah, it's soon because there's a two year old by the way downstairs no. with you. I, I I'm, I'm a grandpa now and I I'm I'm oh. on duty. I love it. Well,
1: look, I thank you so much for your time. There's no way I could have fit everything in that I wanted to get in anyway, but I really appreciate it. And uh, it's uh, it's great to meet you. And thank you for your books. You say you you don't have any superpowers. But these books, I will have to argue with you vociferously.
3: <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Well, if I have a superpower, it's writing for sure, and I it's... I love to write, and I actually have a whole theory. We may let's do this again, but I have a whole theory about the paranormal and writing that I think you'd find really useful. Um, I, I think they're very much related.
1: But um, well, uh, let me tell you this quick story. It's super quick since you mentioned the paranormal and writing. I have these friends that don't, they just don't believe in stuff mystical. And I think the mystics sent them to me. And this one friend of mine that I have lunch with often, I was like, you know, I just ask people, nothing weird ever happened? You're like, come on, that's a long, something. And he goes, nah. He goes, well, there is this one thing. I was like, all right. He goes, well, sometimes I have to write something. He has spoken on TV, he's the president of a, autism foundation like he has to do stuff he's an attorney volunteer police officer he sometimes he he had to write things where he would have to talk on cnn right Uh he was like i'll have to write something i wake up the next morning and i wrote the whole thing in my sleep and i have to make minor changes Yeah, like it's coherent yeah top almost ready to go on tv yeah, And I was like, and you don't think that's weird? He was like, oh, that's just, I'm like, oh man, come on, bro. <laughs> Dude, what's it going to take? <laughs> like, so, I don't know. Yeah, but no, then... I've,
3: I've actually worked, I worked with a major channeler for a while, Paul Selig is his name, and that's how he writes, by the way. He just gets these downloads and, you know, he'll start the next day at exactly where, well, the guides, as he calls them, will start the next day exactly where they left off and, They'll just they'll write a whole book in a couple of weeks like this.
1: I heard Star Trek were kind of, I mean, I feel like a lot of all this stuff, I feel like we're, what is that term I heard? Pre membering? <laughs> I was yeah. like, wow. Well, thank you so much, man. Uh, you've been, uh, it's been a great relief to
3: find you. In your books. Yeah, no, it's fun too just talking to you. I laugh a lot just listening to listening to you. And um but oh let's do it again. Seriously. I I I just I'm leaving because again, there's a two year old No, It's fine. I gotta go pick up
1: my my kids get out at three, so yeah. Definitely. They're my they're my biggest flip now. (laughs) Watching them. It's like Who needs acid? (laughs) You have a great day, man. Thank you so much.
3: All right, take care.
0: Pantheon Media presents Comes a Time featuring Mike Fenoya and Othiel Burbridge. Executive produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Produced and edited by Eric Limarenko and Stu Silverman. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Comes a Time with Mike Fenoya and Otiel Burbridge. Be sure to follow the pod on social media, YouTube, and if you're jonesing for bonus episodes and exclusive content, go to patreon.com forward a time pod and get on the bus.